You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belial and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belial is a physician and editor-in-chief of Maine, Maine Home and Design, Oldport, Ageless, and Moxie Magazines. Love, Maine Radio show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by... Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. Debbie Irving is a racial justice educator, author, and public speaker. She is also the author of Waking Up White, a book that tracks her journey unpacking her white identity. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So white identity, that's such an interesting thing to even have to grapple with, I think. It, well, I didn't know I had one, actually, until the age of 48 when I went to take a course called Racial and Cultural Identities. Um, it was a mandatory class when I was just starting out to get my master's in special ed. And I thought, mistakenly, that I was going to learn the racial and cultural identities of black and brown people so I could be a better teacher in racially mixed classrooms. And I was floored on the first day when the professor told us that we would each be doing our own personal uh, racial and cultural identity dive because I honestly thought, well, what am I going to be doing? I didn't know I had a racial identity. Do you think that we are almost uncomfortable if we are white to to feel as though we have a racial identity? Well, you can't, not everybody in any racial group experiences everything exactly the same, but are some or many white people uncomfortable? I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think people are uncomfortable because well, for a lot of reasons. You know, one is that there's this idea in the United States that we're all individuals and we make it or not on our own. And white people are very much able to buy into that and think we're all just individuals. And what I, my own successes or failures, it's on me. And, um, and so we don't see ourselves as a group. And we don't know, most white people, we don't know what the stereotypes are or the uh, group, the group, um, images are about us as white people, but we are very familiar with the grouping other people, so having stereotypes about all black people, all Asian people, all Latino people, all um, Arab people. So the idea of being in a group, I think, is what's really uncomfortable. So if you say a white identity, a white person has to, for the first time, maybe think, well, I don't identify as white. I'm Italian. I'm Greek. I'm Irish, I'm English, but white's a real thing. It's a real category with a whole experience that goes with it. I remember one of the um, anecdotes that you brought up in the book um, was about Native Americans. And when you were a child asking, where did all the Native Americans go? And I believe your mother's response was something that probably we've all heard before, but... Tell me a little bit 
about that. Ref- tell the people who are listening that story. Yeah, and I, there's so much to unpack in this one little exchange. So the exchange went like this. I said to my mother, where did all the Indians go? And she said, and my mother was a really lovely, warm, compassionate woman, and she she said, you know, it's really sad. Um, they drank themselves to death. And uh, first of all, one thing to note there is that I'm a, I was a little kid and I was curious, which is the most wonderful thing about human beings. We're all actually curious, but I think uh, we learn to be less curious over time because of fear of saying something stupid or wrong. And I sure learned in that moment, the conversation went on a little bit, which I talk about in the book, but it ended up being a conversation that made me never want to ask a question again like that because the answer was so uncomfortable for me. It it, it continued to be about um, Indians being not, that they got really dangerous and they were drunk. And my mother told me a terrible story about a drunken Indian who went on a rampage who killed a family. So um, all of that I now understand is not only, is, is widespread mythology. And my mother wasn't lying to me, but she was teaching me a version of history that she'd been taught. I'm sitting here looking at, um, behind you at the state of Maine, <laughs> behind you, and thinking, you know, my family is an old Maine family. You know, we got a land grant up in Holton, Maine, and um, this entire state and this entire nation of what we now call the United States of America was once indigenous land for hundreds and hundreds thousands of years and that uh history was never taught to me i was told that the indians couldn't handle liquor and they later i think i learned that they couldn't handle european disease and so there was a real uh, manufactured myth of a people who uh, oh and that they lived in the wilderness that they were uncivilized and all of that is untrue there is a really rich history of indigenous peoples in the United States, what became the United States. And unfortunately, there's a really horrific story uh, about what happened to their uh, way of life and to the land that they were so attached to. And that has everything to do with people like my ancestors and descendants of my ancestors who engaged in, um, we don't talk about it, but it's really a terrorism, a a warfare akin to terrorism. So um, boy, that's a lot we can unpack from that one question. So I was right as a little child to wonder whatever happened to all the Indians. And how sad for me, I think, that I got an answer that was uh, by a well-intentioned woman with a lot of love in her heart that perpetuated myths that made me go on to continue to be in a state of ignorance. You also spend a fair amount of time talking about the um, the sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps positive mentality that is really, uh, it is actually a big part of, I think, white culture, although maybe other cultures as well, but how damaging that really can be, that this idea that if we just work really hard as individuals, then we are going to succeed, and that we should always put a happy, smiley face on everything. But what if you're from a cultural group that that's not the way they approach things? Yeah, so when you say not approach things, are you thinking about a culture where, you know, working oneself, I mean, are you you thinking about different work ethics, or are you thinking about the way that that one phrase, that one framing can work differently for people across different groups? I think what I'm saying is, 
when I've had conversations with people who are, for example, I'll just say Italian, uh-huh. and my family, which tends to is French and Irish, we all, we're a little bit more conservative in the way that we interact. But I've been in situations with an Italian family, and there's a there's high volumes, there's a lot of back and forth, there's a, the conflict is dealt with in a very different way. And so what may initially come across as a little overwhelming for me, because uh-huh. I came from the let's all be happy, let's all be harmonic, and let's look at this in a really positive way. They're just, this is they do it differently because they're working through things in a, in a not let's put a smiley face on something and just move forward right so so that's so that feels a little different than, than bootstraps for me what I hear you talking about is a cultural norm so what you experienced in your household is what I experienced in mine which is we're going to put a happy face on buck up look on the bright side be optimistic um, that's a cultural norm around avoiding conflict and also um, what goes hand in hand in that is the idea of emotional restraint. Like if you are unhappy and, or, or if you're angry or sad, like that's not for public consumption. Just go do that in private and we come back and you know behave a certain way and in polite company or shared company or company, whatever you want to say, but, but it gets positioned. So what you and I experienced is very much aligned with what's called the dominant white culture. And that's the culture that we're all asked to um, understand and engage within when we go into the classroom, when we go into workspaces, when we're in a hospital setting, we're in the bank getting a loan. There is a way of being that's seen not only as one way of being, but as right. And so uh, for for me growing up, if I had seen that Italian, and I did see Italian families who, you know, would kind of knock down, drag out uh, over things in their household. And I was really judgmental about that. I didn't see that as another cultural way of being or one that might even be healthier. Um, I saw it as a flawed way of being, as people who weren't emotionally restrained and hadn't learned that conflict you know, avoiding conflict was actually the more civilized approach. So, um, so yeah, so that really what you're starting to tap into with that question and that observation is the idea of cultural norms that can work really well if you're raised in a house that fits that and um, can work against you if you're raised in a different kind of a household. Or if the norm is that we're supposed to be... Um, avoid you know conflict avoidant and emotionally restrained think about the judgment i used to cast on uh, black and brown people who were trying to say i'm experiencing discrimination it feels terrible and instead of being curious now we're back to curiosity and listening and saying tell me more i would judge them for being angry you're too angry you're complaining you're ad you're stirring the pot it's comments like that that are keeping this problem alive i think and I want to go back to the bootstrap thing because I think you're right. It is a separate thing. But I also remember you saying that um, one of the ways that you would deal with people feeling discriminated against was just to say, oh, no, I don't think that that's what they meant. Right. Yeah. So if someone would say to me, you know, my check or, or you know, so I, my, my check didn't get cashed at that uh, your corner store. I would, my thought wouldn't be, you're kidding, like, wow, what? I've got to go investigate that. It would be, no, 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 they they do that because they've done that for me. So I was so stuck in my own experience as a universal experience is how I now understand that. I just couldn't hear truths that I didn't want to be truth. As it turns out, there was discrimination all around me. I could have observed, but I turned a blind eye to it. And um, 
And I did have some colleagues and friends, superficial friends I now understand of color, trying to share discriminatory moments with me, and I just couldn't hear it. It's, it, you know, when I, when I hear what you're saying, I, I have had experiences like this and gone back and looked at myself, you know, a few years back or even a few minutes back, and it's like horrifying to me. I mean, I feel because because one, I would never want to intentionally hurt someone or intentionally try to shut them down or intentionally, um, I don't know, engage in this dominant culture that's so hurtful. Mm-hmm. But it, it still happens, and it's it's so uncomfortable. And you know, I am ten years into this. It was ten years ago this month, or maybe nine years ago this month that I started taking that course. Uh, racial and cultural identity. So I am 10 years into a 24-7 learning curve. And it, if you could see my hand, I am not changing it at all. It's a very, it's a black diamond uphill. <laughs> I still do things. I still behave in ways. What's different is that I now am surrounded by colleagues and friends of color. They're not superficial relationships. And I do have people point out to me or I will feel that feeling, that ugh feeling in my stomach and realize I've said or done something um, that may be hurtful and might just be a sign of my ignorance. That And so that's a difference that I can catch myself and that people, I have trusting enough relationships where people will reflect back for me. And I know never to be defensive. Even when that feeling arises, I know to say, what just happened? This is a learning opportunity. Why did I do that? Where did that, why didn't I know that? Uh, why did I react that way? So... Yeah, that really never goes away. The only thing I think feels different for me is that I've, I'm not even comfortable with the discomfort, but I'm, to, I'm tolerant of the discomfort, and I really, really um, understand, okay, this is a moment to stick with it, learn. Let's talk about the bootstrap thing, which I think is really interesting, because it's this idea that, especially I think you, you put it out there as kind of like a New England thing, where you... If you just go in and you just work hard, you can make your way in life and any success that you have gained is a result of your hard work. And that was something that you learned over time. Wasn't, it wasn't entirely an accurate representation of reality. No, and it, yeah, I go to the Midwest and they, they think they're the ones who invented the bootstrap theory. And I go to the West Coast and they think they're the ones. And I went to Canada. They have it there too. So um, so the bootstrap theory is a universal, it's part of what's called um, United States master narrative. So every country has an identity and a story that, that they tell about themselves, to themselves and to the outside world. And a big piece of the American um, master narrative is that the playing field is level, that anybody can come here um, and just work hard and you can make it. And if the going gets tough, we've got bootstraps so we can pull ourselves up. So it's very much woven into that level playing field concept. Um, and it's where a lot of times you'll hear the word, we're a nation of immigrants, which I want to challenge. We're not a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants and enslaved Africans who were bought, brought here against their will and indigenous peoples who were already living here and are trying very, very hard to uh, still fighting every day for sovereignty and land rights. So um, that's who we are a nation of, not just immigrants, but that immigrant idea that you can come here, you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, um, that felt really real to me. 
because I was surrounded. I grew up in Winchester, Mass., a white suburb and uh, of north of Boston. I was surrounded by families who had a story that went, you know, my great-grandparents came here from Italy, Ireland, Germany, France. They had two cents in their pocket. They didn't speak a word of English. They were treated like dirt. And look at us now, a couple generations later. We worked hard, and we made it. We achieved the American dream. And so the level playing field and the bootstraps theory of working hard really does work for a lot of people. In many ways, the United States and this great melting pot idea, the reason it's problematic is that it excludes a lot of people who are so marginalized and targeted um, targeted with barriers to not be able to access the American dream, that it, it makes them look like losers. Um, it makes it look like they didn't work hard enough, like they don't want to work hard enough, like they want to live off the government. And so it allows a whole group of immigrants who are able to eventually become white um, turn and judge and say, my family did it, why can't yours? Without knowing all that's gone down in terms of... Um, erecting and maintaining uh, barriers to housing, lending, education, food supply, medical care, transportation that many communities of color experience that white people don't even know about or have to know about. You gave the example of the GI Bill and how that was really, um, it meant different things to different people depending upon essentially their skin color. Oh my God, that blew me away. And I, you know, if I could say one thing that I that people say to me in the book blew them away, it's that um, because there is this idea. This is this is again it's that level playing field. So the GI Bill, it, which uh, for anyone listening, GI was the term used for veteran back in um, after World War II, and the GI Bill was a was a set of benefits offered by the United States government to returning veterans, and it had a housing component and it had a um, higher ed component as well as a couple others but uh, my father went to Harvard Law School on that bill and my parents bought their first home in Winchester Massachusetts for $17,000 on that bill and um, I thought it was available to everyone it turns out the GI Bill mostly excluded the black and brown GIs because there, there were 1.2 million black GIs there were indigenous GIs there were Latino GIs there were, um, and there were Asian American GIs and the reason black and brown GIs were mostly unable to access it wasn't because it said it was a white-only bill. It was because there were pre-existing barriers in our society. So, for instance, I'll just speak to the housing piece. Um, at the time, the uh, Federal Housing Authority, when it created the mortgage in the 1930s and set out to um, develop a big, as part of the New Deal, a big housing expansion all across the United States, the mortgage was created to help facilitate that. And the mortgage um, said that you know private banks and some government lending agencies were suddenly going to be in the business of making loans to everyday people to go buy everyday homes. This is a completely new endeavor. And the FHA said, you know, we want to be careful that all of us lenders manage our risk. And so we're going to think about what are good loans and what are bad loans. And they created color-coded maps of cities and neighborhoods and towns uh, that outlined who lived where according to racial lines. So the practice was called redlining. 
because outlined in red were neighborhoods where black and brown people lived and outlined in green were neighborhoods where only white people lived and um, then there were two other gradations in between and this all stemmed from one phrase in the FHA guidelines that said the presence of even one or two non-white individuals can undermine real estate values. So that meant that keeping white neighborhoods white was the only way, in the, in the imaginations of the people who constructed this policy, that keeping white neighborhoods white was the only way to keep housing values, um, maintain and escalate, uh, maintain and build um, equity in homes. So the GI Bill was only good in white neighborhoods. So black and brown GIs could not use the housing portion of that. And you think about, well, yeah, that was back in the 1940s, and here we are in 2018. But the wealth transfer that happened, you know, $120 billion went from government coffers into the hands of private individuals through the housing portion of the GI Bill. And that's in 1940s dollars. And 98% of that went to white families like mine. And so that house in Winchester that my parents bought, you know, they, they upgraded at some point and bought a bigger house and then ultimately sold that for a million dollars, 40 years after that first $17,000 investment made possible by the government. And so when you look at the white, black, um, or you could just call it the racial wealth gap today, you see how much more money white people have um, on average. And... You know, once I would have explained that as white people were harder working, smarter, more intelligent, more responsible with their money. And now I just see it's an, an inevitable outcome of policy after policy. I've just named one. Policy after policy that's diverted uh, resources and rights and access to white people um, disproportionately. How did that feel to you when you learned that your family had benefited and you had benefited? and other people weren't benefiting from it, given that you were studying this? I felt duped. I felt really duped and angry. And um, because I really love the idea of a level playing field. I love the idea of being part of a country where it is a safe harbor, where people can come to this country, like my Irish ancestors did. Um, you know, from, from a time of famine and, and, and find a place, find a home and, you know, work really hard and make it. And when I realized that that American dream that I was so invested in really wasn't available to everyone and that there was some real, um, there was greed and um, malintent. It wasn't just good people not knowing better, that there was some real, there, there was a lot of manipulation happening in ways that made me suddenly um, not proud to be a, an American. And I go back and forth between that. I just, there's so many beautiful things about this country, and yet we as a country are not living into, we're not walking our talk. And what bothers me much more is that there's a denial of that. You know, I said to my family over the holidays at um, one of our holiday dinners, I said, what's worse? If somebody wrongs you or somebody goes on to deny the wrong? And even the youngest kids at the table were able to say, oh, if somebody denies, like if someone does something wrong and admits it, you can fix it. But if they deny it, that makes it so much worse. 
And that's what I'm really stuck on. That's why I, that's the work I'm doing is to try to figure out how to move white people to owning what we, now we're back to that first question, white identity, why people don't want to own it or why it might be uncomfortable. There's a really tragic history inflicted on many people by um, not every white person, but by um, this whole idea of white as a race, whiteness as a way of being. And it's just harming so many people, and I would argue it's even harming white people. I'm fortunate because I have children who are in various levels of education, and so I've been able to, through them, see this evolution in how we are approaching education on subjects like, I don't know, let's say imperialism. Um, but it also creates a lot of questions for me because, for example, I live in I live in Yarmouth, and Yarmouth is a town that had a lot of Native Americans at one point, and a lot of friction happened, and there were people who came to settle the land, and there was fighting, and people died as a result of it. And the Native Americans became known as the ones who had done the bad deed. And the and now we have a settlers' cemetery, where this is the 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 narrative is that here's all this violent stuff with these violent Native Americans, and they wouldn't just give us the land. So as I'm trying to even make. I was trying to just do an Instagram post about a cemetery that I ran past. I didn't even know what to call it because it's not really the settler cemetery. Does this make sense? Yes. I mean, we don't even really have labels around a history anymore because it's almost so unclear as to how we're supposed to interpret things now. Yes. And, you know, so what has, this is a little bit like the game of telephone. Like we are so many generations removed now from what actually happened and we rely on you know, this is the, the winners tell the history. It's part of that. But even then, it's as if the history has just gone away. It's whitewashed in a way that it's it's amnesiatic. And so I, I think sometimes, you know, when I talk to people about trying to just be curious enough to understand what you don't know, I think about, well, think, imagine, like, imagine walking into a party and something terrible happened there two hours ago. But you have no idea that it happened and no one's talking about it, but the dynamics and the tensions in the space are still going to be there. That's, sort, that's what's happening in this country. All of the dynamics born of that um, are still among us. It's why we tell the history we do. It's why we get anxious and, um, and fearful and defensive and sometimes violent when the history gets questioned. But we've got to go back to that original uh, history so that we don't repeat it. So how, how do we do this? I mean, I think you're right that history kind of goes to the victors, mm -hmm. but it's mostly the people who could read and write at that time. We may not have all the access that we need to past information by non-victors. There is so much information. On the indigenous front alone, uh, indigenous people are walking in and among us every day, and that's a culture that already uh, lived by oral culture, oral, oral history, uh, storytelling. So 
it's a matter of will. It's a matter, matter of wanting to know how do you tell your history in your community? Indigenous history is very much alive. Black history, it's Black History Month, very much alive. There are, you, you know, we've got Chicano history. We've got so much history that is very much intact, right down to original documents. You know, there are treaties we can look at, and there are people who can make meaning of it. And so it's a matter, really, of dominant white uh, institutions, our media channels, our educational institutions, our cities, our governments being willing to open up the lid and say, let's take a look at this. So, you know, I would recommend there's an amazing book called The Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar um, Ortiz that I just finished that took me about three months to read because I could only handle about five pages at a time because it was so different than the history I learned. Um, you know, there's Howard Zinn's book about uh, people's history of the United States. There's um, Ron Takaki's book, which is called A Different Mirror, which again is, is telling many different people's uh, version of history. So those are all, I mean, Indigenous People is a book by Roxanne Dumbarge is a deep dive into Indigenous, but you can get these kind of survey books, Howard Zinn's and, and Ronald Takaki's. Um, that you can take a deep dive into any population you want, and there is simply no shortage of voice and storytelling and and original documents uh, telling the story of what happened in this country. So the information is out there. I just can't necessarily go to the Wikipedia page to find it. You can sure you can get a long way by googling. I think the biggest challenge is for uh, people who are new to this understanding that I would say we've been robbed. I was a history major in college. I feel downright robbed of, a, of an education. Uh, my culture shortchanged me. My education shortchanged me. My family shortchanged me. Uh, so the whole idea that we don't know what we don't know is that sort of a paradigm shift uh, once people are willing to make the paradigm shift and say, okay, so I was taught that black men were criminal and thugs and that black women get pregnant, have babies, and live off the government and that Mexicans are rapists and lazy and that Muslims are terrorists. And can you suspend all of that myth-making that lives in you? And I'll, this is what I've had to do because all of it lived in me and some of it still lives in me in ways I have to manage. Can I suspend that long enough to go in search of and take in information that's not that 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 counters that it's a it's a intellectual and emotional challenge um and yet if when we don't take it we just hold in place the status quo which is immense inequity and when i say it hurts white people too are you're a doctor right yeah so this whole idea when we're talking about, remember we were talking about Italian family and the whole idea of bottling up emotion, which is the way I was raised, it's incredibly unhealthy. And the dominant white culture asks a lot of everybody, including white people, uh, to you know, not show vulnerability, act tough, act smart, show what you know, be, be tough, don't, don't show weakness, uh, don't get angry, don't rock the boat. All of those things put us in a state of complying with the status quo that 
that hurt us in terms of our spiritual, physical, emotional well-being. So if anyone is listening and needs an incentive, <laughs> it's really, uh, I feel like I'm, I am, I'm 58 years old and I have more energy and more vitality and more curiosity than I've ever had in my life just by pursuing what happened to me when I was asked to be white. What did I have to give up? And I'm reclaiming my humanity. I enjoyed your book quite a lot. I'm glad that um, I took the time to listen to it. It was an audio book, so it was fun to listen to the voice that I'm now talking to. I've been speaking with Debbie Irving, who is a racial justice educator, author, and public speaker, also the author of Waking Up White, a book that tracks her journey unpacking her white identity. For anyone who's interested, it's really um, it's an uncomfortable read but it's extremely educational. And I came away feeling um, a lot more curious. Mm. And I tend to be curious anyway. Mm -hmm. I appreciate your coming in. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kate Gardner. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Andrea King, Kevin Thomas, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com.